Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Thursday, the 23rd of September. Welcome to Mornings with Carmen. My guess is that the things that will consume your thoughts today will not be the things consuming the concerns of mainstream media and the headlines that will be pressed out by most media outlets today. And so I just want to acknowledge that and recognize that and say to you, let the good news dominate the news cycle in your life. Like that's, <laughs> that's my encouragement this morning. Let the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ dominate the news cycle. Because the news cycle in the world is a, is a rapidly evolving and yet never changing reality. Uh, and so, you know, the greatest conflict, whatever that looks to be in a given moment, is what is going to lead the quote-unquote news. And that is often not um, the good news, the good news of the gospel or the good news of neighbors helping neighbors or the good news of the regular rhythms of life. And so let me encourage you today to be a person who not only spends time in the Word of God, so where in the Word are you today, um, but also spreads the Word of God. So as the world squeezes us, those who are filled with the Word of God, filled with the grace and the truth of the gospel, um, that we would be people from whom that good news would also pour forth, that we would be agents of grace, that we would be ministers of reconciliation, that we would be genuine ambassadors of the King and the kingdom, that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, and that it would do so through the agency of our lives, our words, um, the ways in which we have an opportunity today to show goodness and mercy and beauty and love. So uh, it doesn't matter if the headline is about the United Nations or the debt ceiling or refugees or immigrants or catastrophe um, or lunch money. Let it be a conversation about the redemptive arc of God's work right now in the context of real life. Because God is present. God is real. And the hope of Jesus Christ holds. He's not going away. In fact, he's coming again. We're going to spend some time this morning with our friend Ben Johnson covering some headline news of the day. Um, So let me just start with this. Would you bring a sword to a gunfight? Well, how about to a gun-free fight? Yep, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Joining me now, our friend Ben Johnson. You can find him at dailywire.com. We also like to call him the rights writer, so that is his handle on Twitter. Ben, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Great to be with you. Good morning. All right, so when I saw Elon Musk's partner carrying a sword at the Met Gala, I thought to myself, this seems like a good opportunity to talk with Ben about our Second Amendment rights. He's the right writer. Let me ask him about this story. Open carry. That's going to be how I tee up the conversation about the refashioned AK-47 that appeared at the Met, at the Met Gala uh, in the form of a sword. H- how do you like that for teeing up a conversation bright and early in the morning? I love the creativity that went into this, uh, in, into your part of it, if, if not to, into the fashioning of the sword at any rate. Uh, that, that, was, that was a brilliant observation on, on your part. So uh, Elon Musk uh, is, is uh, uh, as you say, the, the term they use is partner uh, with uh, a lady named Grimes. And uh, Grimes had a, a very specific sort of a space age outfit made, of course, the Met Gala. We saw a lot of messages that were uh, sent on people's dresses and things of that sort. This one was was kind of a, a unique sci-fi sort of outfit uh, with a sort of a, a gravity-defying ponytail and things of that sort. Uh, not much of a, a dress to go with it, but uh, she she had um, a very specific accessory made, which is there's a program in uh, New York City that takes AR-15s primarily, but guns of all sorts, and turns them into full broadswords. Uh, I mean, this this is like a knight's sword. Uh, as as uh, you were pointing out, this this is not simply uh, like something you would see in a fencing match or something like that. Uh, this is this is a sword that is at least I would say four feet long. Uh, in pictures where the point is resting on the ground and she's holding it, it comes up uh, almost to her shoulders. So this is a very this is an enormous real sword. Uh, again, made out of an AR-15. So the symbolism that this art collective that made it uh, is showing is that uh, the guns will be uh, will be turned away. And of course, that brings to mind the uh, the verse from the Book of Isaiah, which uh, is also, of course, uh, carved into a United Nations park. Isaiah 2:4, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, and nation shall not rise up against nation; they shall study war no more. Of course, you have that great spiritual that comes from that. Uh, I can understand that that kind of a longing, that kind of a desire. I think that it's innate and in, in, in built into every human heart that eventually we do away with all weapons. Uh, first of all, that's not what happens here because the sword is a weapon. <laughs> but uh, uh, secondly, the Bible verses specifically about getting rid of swords. Uh, but uh, but second of all, then uh, the way that that comes about is just one verse earlier where uh, it's very clear from the book of Isaiah, what we're talking about is something that happens, uh, quote-unquote, in the end times. That's his phrase. He says, uh, people will say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. And so real peace comes about only when we walk in the ways of the commandments of the Lord. We walk with the Lord and we're in a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. That's when true peace is going to reign, because what really brings about peace isn't an absence of weapons or a presence of weapons. 
Uh, anyone who's been on a school playground knows that the absence of weapons does not bring the, the presence of peace. What brings peace is when the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts, causes us to love one another, realize that we're all children of the same high God, then we'll walk in peace. Uh, I don't think that's the intention either of the Met Gala or of the art collective that made this, because this is the same collective that made little Nas uh, item Satan shoes a while back that have a pentagram on them. Mm. Swords into plowshares was certainly the verse that came to mind. Um, and then I had very practical questions. Because, you know, like, how heavy would that sword have been? I know. See, these are my these it are was, the practical these are the practical yeah. questions that Carmen wonders when she sees pictures in the newspaper and headline news. No, oh, that was brilliant. I mean, you would you would you would have to work your guns on that one. Uh, you know, your right? other kind of guns, yeah. In order right? to pick that. I'm thing telling up. you, like I feel like a four foot long broadsword that is, you know, a melted down, refashioned AK-47. Like that's that is that is heavier than like a bedazzled purse. So there you go. That was um, I. I also, of course, had all kinds of thoughts about do fire zone, firearm free zones, you know, gun free zones. Do they cover swords? Are we going to see a change in language related to that, like a weapons free zone? And then we're going to have to start defining what weapons are. And it gets me to the place in the conversation where you cannot actually come up with enough laws to prevent every kind of evil in the environment in which you live. Um, because, right, I mean, there were no AK-47s. There weren't even swords when the first man picked up a stone against his brother and slew him. And so I, I just, I think that the conversation for us is about violence and envy and why people pick up um, arms against one another and, and the concerns and the issues of the human heart. Well, and if you think about uh, the most intensified uh, gun-free zone that there is, which would be a penitentiary, uh, there ideally are no mm. guns except for the people who are guarding the people, and yet uh, constantly people are creating shivs. They're making makeshift weapons out of things. Uh, there are constant uh, uh, fights back and forth. There was a prison riot not too far from where I live here recently. So uh, there, it's an incredibly intensely violent atmosphere. Uh, the problem is not the technology. Uh, the problem is not uh, the weapon that is created necessarily. And the problem is not necessarily uh, within other contexts. The, the problem is not the Internet, which uh, is a temptation to so many. The problem is not whatever technology it is that we create. The problem is how we use it. Uh, and so all things were initially created good, including our intellect. Uh, these weapons were made uh, ideally for self-defense initially and uh, to protect people from aggression. They were not intended to be used for aggression uh, as, as an aggressive kind of weapon. But as, as we see, that has been changed. It's been transformed because of the, the, the darkness of human hearts. We need to have a sense of peace, a sense of unity, and a sense of God's love for all people. Otherwise, there will never be peace, no matter how many weapons we abolish. Mm. All right, that seems like a good segue into a, into a conversation about uh, both the United Nations and something happening in Washington, D.C. related to the ongoing U.S. funding of Israel's Iron Dome. So that conversation up next with our friend Ben Johnson. We'll be right back. Throw me like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. 
Continuing our conversation with our friend Ben Johnson, you can find him at dailywire.com. He is also on Twitter as the rights writer. Um, ben, let's uh, let's transition our conversation just slightly, um, and let's talk about defense and self-defense. Um, Israel's Iron Dome is, uh, you know, is like having um, a lock on your well, more than a lock on your door. It's like having a gate at the end of your driveway, maybe. Um, and so, for people who live in a gated neighborhood, think of Israel's Iron Dome as uh, as the gate. Um, for a nation that lives in a really dangerous neighborhood. Uh, it is largely funded by the United States, um, and that funding has been put at risk by Democrats who want to see it removed from uh, from the budget. So give us some you know top-line understanding of what's going on in this story, uh, and then maybe let's just talk about U.S. international relations right now and the state of things. Yeah, so uh, there, there was a huge spending bill passed, uh, which seems to be the only kind that gets passed anymore. But uh, there, there was an enormous spending bill that was passed through the uh, House of Representatives. They're, they're working on it. And one of the things they did in this was to remove uh, funding for uh, the Iron Dome. It's about a billion dollars uh, that would allow Israel to restock the Iron Dome missile defense system. So uh, that, that was taken out in large part by... Uh, uh, the, I guess you would say the progressive end of the uh, Democratic Party, uh, Representative Ilhan Omar, for example, said we should not sell weapons to human rights violators. Uh, and she was, of course, speaking of Israel. So uh, that, that funding came out, which uh, talks about an interesting change in the Democratic Party caucus itself, because the Democratic Party used to be almost as pro-Israel as uh, the Republican Party during the Cold War and uh, much of the 1980s, 1990s. In the uh, mid-90s, that began to change. But uh, now you see uh, a rise of an outspoken group of members who do not want uh, the United States to be allied with Israel. And this was one of the first concrete steps uh, to that end. But um, and, and by the way, there's been a bill introduced yesterday in order to uh, to uh, provide that as a standalone measure since that was taken out of the broader bill, uh, which very likely will pass. But that in and of itself um, one of the things that uh, is, is significant about this, which, uh, which you pointed out in our discussions earlier, is just the way that uh, this sort of shows a haphazard approach to our allies uh, and uh, sort of puts a real question into our international relationships. One of the things that uh, Joe Biden sold when he was running for president was that he had relationships with every leader in the world that he had been involved in international diplomacy as vice president for eight years, but then as a U.S. senator for a very, very long time, going back to the 1970s. And so when he came back, he would put the professionals back in charge. The adults would be in the room again, and he would reestablish our relationship. And when he was at the United Nations, he was talking about how essentially America's back. We're back in a multilateral relationship. Uh, but then you see what's happening with uh, this, this deal that was cut for uh, for submarines that offended France and left France out of the loop, uh, how uh, the UK was caught off guard by the idea to reopen things to international travelers, as you pointed out. So 
there are a lot of questions about the way that he's handling this and to undermine Israel, which, uh, of course, we've had a long and uh, very uh, uh, studied relationship with uh, for uh, since its founding in 1948. We were the first nation to recognize it is another step in that direction. One, one thing that I think is worth highlighting for those who are not familiar, people hear missile system, they assume this is offensive. The Iron Dome, as you say, is like a gate. It's a defensive weapon system. Uh, when, when Ronald Reagan came up with uh, the idea of masterminding and uh, supercharging our, our uh, development of uh, the SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, one of the things that he promised, and this is often forgotten, he wanted to come up with a defensive missile system that would defend the United States against any kind of missile attack. And then he wanted to share that his, his pledge was the very day after this was perfected and we had uh, deployed it for ourselves, he would share it with the Soviet Union. And then he would share it with all other allies as well. He wanted the entire world to be protected against a, an offensive nuclear attack with defensive nuclear weapons. So. The idea that Ronald Reagan would do that for the Soviet Union, and Ronald Reagan was the great Cold Warrior, but the United States doesn't want to do that for its allies uh, in any meaningful way, is, um, is gives you an idea about the way that foreign policy has changed over the last several years. So that gives me an opportunity to at least mention that the Air Force seems almost ready to unveil what everyone is describing as its secret new space weapon apparently designed to, uh, as a deterrent, again, it's a defensive, it's sort of like our defensive Iron Dome um, over the whole world, which is an interesting uh, conversation for us to be looking toward uh, maybe in the weeks and months to come. Um, I'm, you know, I'm certainly anticipating that the Air Force is going to be sharing more about that since headline news like in places like Popular Mechanics is already covering it. Um when we talk about international relations, you know, I wish that we had opportunity to talk about things other than the United States assisting Australia in uh, procuring uh, nuclear-powered submarines because they now live in a with a threat assessment of China uh, in the Pacific, um, or the U.S. funding a defensive system like the Iron Dome over Israel. Does it seem as if the world is becoming increasingly hostile um, I mean, or does it just feel that way because we know more about more things happening in more places? The world is becoming more hostile. And the reason is that the United States is not exerting the sort of power that it once did. Uh, there is a power vacuum, particularly in, um, in, in uh, the developing world, but especially in the South China Sea and China as a rising power is flexing its muscles. Uh, over and we've seen this coming uh, really ever since it, uh, before it was added to the World Trade Organization as a partner. But since its addition to the WTO, uh, we've seen China take in massive amounts of funding through its uh, uh, through variously dubious uh, trading practices, business practices where they shake down people for secrets, uh, they shake down organizations, they implant spies and corporations and steal uh, technology, and then they've used. That money, which they get through exports, uh, primarily to the United States, but others as well, uh, you know, like almost everything stocked in your store shelves is made in China or, or was, they have taken that amount and spent, uh, they had double-digit increases in their so-called defense budget, 
which is why they're menacing Taiwan. They're, they have cracked down on Hong Kong. And China sees itself uh, not merely as a strategic competitor, the way that uh, Joe Biden described them and uh, Jen Psaki has described them over the last week. They see themselves as the replacement for the United States on the global stage. They've had a BRICS initiative, uh, building roads and, and infrastructure around the rest of the world. They eventually hope to replace the U.S. dollars, the world's reserve currency, with renminbi. And when they do this, uh, they, their intention is to flex the military might that goes along with this to make China a great dominant world power. Since the United States doesn't intend to take that sitting down and we have uh, allies around the world, uh, the allies, particularly Japan, wants to become a nuclear power. Uh, we're talking about um, uh, increasing our presence in the South China Sea. There, there are. It's an increasingly hostile time because of this power vacuum uh, that's come about through decades of uh, of oversight with China's real intentions. People in Washington have diluted, have diluted themselves about the real effect of trading with a hostile communist authoritarian state, and uh, the fact that we've always believed that. Whatever happens, ultimately, the United States will come out. We've also undermined our own economic power through massive debt spending. And we've got this self-crisis confidence right now. Uh, what, what Jimmy Carter called a crisis of confidence is a very real thing. People no longer think that the United States is a force for good at home, let alone around the world. So that's why, as the United States, which is a power and a force for good, uh, you're seeing that replaced and the world is becoming more dangerous, more nuclear armed. That's why we need. Right. The, that's why. That's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If, if we if, if we convert China to Christianity, then uh, Lord willing, we will uh, live in peace as brothers. Amen. Amen. Um, I think I hold out that hope when I watch what's unfolding at the United Nations as well. So, Ben, thank you so much. We don't have time to talk about the UN today, but um, maybe we could talk about that in subsequent conversations because. Uh, by next week, you know, we'll have some outcomes of the U.N. General Assembly meeting, and there might be things there worthy for us to till. Undoubtedly, there will be. All right. That's Ben Johnson. You can read what he's writing at DailyWire.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He is the rights writer. We'll be right back. All right. We have been talking on a regular basis about the hundreds of thousands of people fleeing Afghanistan. Uh, we have been talking about those who are uh, making their way in real time and over time here to the United States as, as people who will ultimately be integrated into American society. They cannot go back uh, to Afghanistan. They will become Americans. Uh, they are refugees, and we will be um, receiving them in fairly large numbers. So we're going to have that conversation with Matthew Sorens from World Relief. He and I will also talk about the crisis at the U.S. southern border. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. A strained relationship with a teenager in your family can bring a lot of stress to the home. Not only are interactions with a son or daughter full of tension, the strain can reach right into a relationship between husband and wife. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. I hear the story all too often. An out-of-control teen can cause trouble at home in such drastic ways that a wedge is driven between the marriage of mom and dad. Maybe that's what's happening in your home. If so, take some time to identify how your teen's behavior is threatening your marriage. Openly express your feelings with your spouse. Don't expect your spouse to be the only one to change. 
focus on how you can pour into the marriage and work together as a team. Mark Gregson is devoted to helping parents of struggling teens. For more helpful parenting resources, go to parentingtodaysteens.org. Parentingtodaysteens.org. Matthew Sorens is joining us again today. You can find him at World Relief. You can also find him at the Evangelical Immigration Table. Matt, welcome back. Good to be back with you, Carmen. So we're going to talk again today, as we do every time we talk, about two related but very different issues. Um, One is immigration. And so today we'll focus on what's happening at the U.S. southern border, and we'll talk about immigration but there are is also a conversation about refugees, which is a different um, group of people who who are facing, though, a similar need and desire. And that is to move from where they are to someone else somewhere else around the globe. So let's start with refugees and let's specifically talk about what's going on in terms of the refugee cap, um, what that means, how that's been raised and um, and then the resettlement of specifically Afghani refugees and maybe inviting people into that as uh, as how Christians are responding here in the United States. Yeah, I think that's a helpful way to, to distinguish between what's happening. So let's go forward with that. Um, I, so, I would say... Yeah, yeah. so just let's start with um, people may not have heard that the cap of refugees has been raised by the president. So let's talk a little bit about that and then um, what what do you know? How can you bring us up to speed on what's happening with the resettlement of, of Afghanis here in the United States? Sure. So the, uh, the State Department said this week that the president will be raising the ceiling on refugee admissions. That's the maximum possible number of refugees who could come into the United States, um, up to 125,000 for the, the new fiscal year that starts on October 1st. Just for historical context, I mean, depending on how you want to frame that, that's either a huge increase or sort of back to a historic norm. Um, it's the, la- the last year at this time, President Trump set that ceiling at 15,000. So that's obviously a big increase from 15 to 125,000. On the other hand, um, you know, back in the 90s, President George H.W. Bush put it well above 125,000 in, in 1993. President Carter at one point put it at 200,000. 200, thousand plus. So in some ways, it's going back to a historic norm. And it's responding to a, you know, a situation in Afghanistan and elsewhere where we have a greater number of refugees in the world right now than at any point in recorded history. So we're encouraged by that at World Relief. We're one of the, the nine agencies nationally that will receive people. It is really important to note that a ceiling, um, if any of you are in your houses right now, you're probably not touching the ceiling. Some people are very close to it. Some people are not. Um, You might get up to the ceiling or you might not. In fact, um, in recent years, sometimes the U.S. hasn't gotten anywhere near that ceiling, sometimes not even, you know, just a small fraction. So we're really pushing the Biden administration now to make sure that not only do they set the ceiling at the historic norm, but also that there's the all the work that needs to go into processing people overseas, um, which is complicated by COVID, of course, um, and by some other things. But that really needs to be their priority um, to make sure that people who are vulnerable and, again, a refugee by definition has fled persecution on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin or social group. That includes, you know, a lot of persecuted Christians and other religious minorities, it includes people fleeing authoritarian political, um, you know, parties. 
Uh, and then it would certainly likely include some Afghans who are fleeing the Taliban. And some of those folks are already starting to arrive, um, some of them with refugee status, some of something called a special immigrant visa that's very similar, but specifically for those who serve the U.S. military. Some are coming in with a parole status, which is basically just a way to get them through the process a little bit faster, still do a thorough security vetting. But rather than keep people in a military base in Qatar or Germany, they've been brought at this point about 50,000 Afghans to military bases in the U.S., and we're anticipating those people being distributed to local communities around the United States in the coming weeks. So it's a, a real time for the church to step up and be prepared to welcome people and um, and show them the love of Christ. Uh, two thoughts. Um, one, when you gave us the example of the ceiling and you know whether or not you can reach the ceiling and how often you reach the ceiling. You know, it it occurs to me that we are nationally also in a conversation about raising the debt ceiling. And so raising a ceiling um, is not an unusual conversation to happen on a regular basis. It's just that we need to be raising this ceiling and maybe not another one. Right. Like (laughs) if we if we're going to raise a ceiling, let's raise the refugee cap. Um, Let's not raise the debt ceiling. So there you go. That's my personal opinion on that. Um, But when you point to folks arriving um, with these different statuses, which maybe I'm supposed to say stati, I don't know, Um, special immigrant visa, parole status, actual refugee status. The UN is meeting um, right now in general session. They have um, oversight of uh, sort of the the flow of people around the world in terms of refugee status. I think that's that's a part of this conversation for folks to just be reminded of as well. But I'd love to focus on um, sort of the what can we do aspect of the conversation. So as people are arriving in the United States, as the church is responding, as World Relief is helping churches respond, like what tangibly can individual Christians listening right now do? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest needs as people arrive is friendship, which sounds awfully basic. But if any of us would think about having to leave our homes and our countries and, you know, ending up halfway around the world in a different country with a different culture, probably a different religion. You know, I think most of us would be grateful for someone there at the airport to meet us. I don't know if any of, you know, anyone who's ever traveled internationally, there's this sort of like a scary moment when you're in a new place and you don't understand the signs around you. You're not even sure how to get to where you're going. And most of us do that in a context where we've got some money in our pocket and a U.S. passport and a certain degree of protection. So having, you know, that uh, team of volunteers, and we try to do that from, as we call it, a good neighbor team, it's a team from a church, um, who will walk alongside a family, and there'll be support from World Relief staff, of course, as well. Um, There's lots of, like, very tangible needs that people have up front, making sure they go and get all their documents lined up, getting uh, a first job, getting kids into school, obviously finding housing, and our goal would be to find that housing usually before the family even arrives and have it all furnished, so that's another way we lean on teams from churches to help with furniture and household items. Um, But I I think the most important thing is that element of friendship and just being committed not to just a one-time, you know, nice to meet you, but walking alongside people through at least those first few months of their adjustment into a new country. I I will say that one particular need with so many Afghans arriving um, in a short period of time is is housing Um, in a lot of the country right now. There's just not a lot of apartments for rent. And then the pool of apartments whose landlords will rent to someone with no credit history is even much smaller. So um, if there are people who happen to own apartment buildings and want to, you know, be willing to rent to a refugee, 
World Relief or the other resettlement agencies that help them will be able to help them cover the first few months of rent. Um, and then we'll be helping them get a job to make sure they can cover the rent going forward. But that's, you know, that's a challenge, especially because a lot of these, there's a lot of large families coming and you can't put a family of eight in a one bedroom apartment in most cities. And, you know, most people would feel a little crammed there. So that's a real challenge for sure right now. And, and then the last thing I would say is um, there is a real need for financial support right now, even more than it's always sort of a public private partnership. The government pays some of the costs for refugee resettlement. But the resettlement agencies like World Relief rely on support from churches and individuals to do a lot more than, than we could. You know, we really couldn't welcome people with much um, dignity with the, the amount that the government provides. But some of these Afghans are not going to qualify for all the normal support that a normal resettled refugees will, will qualify for. They'll get some assistance from the government, but it's going to take a broader effort with more support from churches, individuals, um, companies. We've actually been really encouraged by some, some big companies coming forward. Uh, Airbnb has provided a whole bunch of credit for their properties, which is a huge blessing right now because it's meeting a huge need. Um, but that's those are some ways that, that individuals and churches could be a part of, of welcoming people. All right. I want uh, if you're listening right now, I want you to um, as you're driving around, I want you to look around. I want you to pray. I want you to ask God to help you think creatively and put you in relationships with other people who share this concern if the urgent need is housing, then, you know, are there empty farmhouses out there sprinkled across uh, the landscape? Um, the U.S. Census indicates that there are some towns in the United States at risk of utterly disappearing because, like, m- so many people have moved out. Well, who might move in? How might we help people not just in a one-off, but how might we help them create entire communities where they can be in relationship and fellowship with one another and genuinely rebuild their lives in community with one another. And yes, in the context of their new adopted home, I really want to challenge us to think creatively. The church is dispersed in every community across this country. Um, and if we would apply the mind of Christ to this con- this urgent concern, we might come up with an answer to the urgent need for housing and the desire for this massive inflow of people to really have an opportunity to build unique community here in the United States, um, which is something that they have lost in Afghanistan. So let's put the mind of Christ uh, forward and advance this this kingdom purpose in our generation in creative ways. You guys can connect with Matthew Sorens. I guarantee you he'd be happy to hear creative ideas um, and, and how the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States of America might help welcome these neighbors from Afghanistan as they arrive here uh, to the United States. We are going to transition our conversation to what's happening on the U.S. southern border. We're going to talk about why there are so many Haitians seeking to cross the U.S. southern border, um, and how did they get there? Like, like what is going on um, in terms of the desire to immigrate in this way across this particular border right now? So that's the conversation that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, thank you to the person who um, sent me a quick personal text message that there is a rural refugee network. There actually is a way for you to give property or or help uh, people who are displaced find um, find a new home 
um, in a new land. So anyway, I'm thinking here about a real estate investment trust that somebody who's listening right now might say to themselves, I know how to do that. I could do that. I could help make that happen. So anyway, there you go. That's the that's the inspiration of the morning. Hopefully somebody is inspired by that and is going to take it and run with it. Uh, Matthew, let's let's talk about the U.S. southern border. Let's talk about immigration. You and I frequently talk about the need for people to um, enter into the legal immigration process if they want to come to the United States. Obviously, there's a massive flow of people seeking to cross the U.S. southern border illegally. And so that brings us to a conversation about 15,000 individuals, many of whom are Haitian, um, who were at one point in this week um, under the International Bridge at Del Rio, Texas. So um, that number has been reduced to something like 5,000. That's a pretty quick uh, drawdown, which means that many, many of those people have now been um, released into the United States with uh, with a request that they would – appear that they would present themselves in another community um, to, uh, to to the United States um, in another way and form. Now, that's not likely to happen for many, many of them. Can you explain to people where these Haitian immigrants have actually come from? Because it's not like they're coming directly from Haiti. Yeah, that's correct. So what, from what we understand, the, at least the significant majority of these Haitians um, have been outside of Haiti for a number of years. Uh, many of them made their way uh, at some point to South America, particularly to Brazil. And then, and some of that was actually fueled by the Olympics and by Brazil needed workers. And so that was how some of them got there. But then they just needed them for this time period. And then they were struggling to make ends meet. Many of them moved on to Chile, um, moved to other parts of South America. And then, and you know, they've just been wandering around. Basically, there's maybe a parallel there to the people of Israel in the wilderness, but looking for a place to belong for years. And in one way or another, they got the idea that the United States may be willing to give them a chance. I I do think it's really important to realize, and they have in most cases crossed the border unlawfully, which is literally walking across what is basically a stream where the Rio Grande is there, but they're not doing so trying to escape from the United States government. They're coming in a large group asking for help. And, um, most, some of them, uh, their intention is to request asylum. So it's even complicated. Their mode of entry is unlawful. And yet the law says very explicitly that you can request asylum whether you have entered lawfully or not. I mean, people can debate whether that should be the law, but it is the law. But the further complicating factor is the, uh, the, both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have used a public health rule called Title 42 to say that we don't actually have to respect that immigration law in the midst of a public health emergency. We can just expel people. So even what's been happening in the last few days is it's complicated. It's true, and it almost depends which cable news channel you watch, which of these stories you've heard. They're both true. People are being allowed in the United States with a date to present themselves for an asylum hearing, and people are being deported back to Haiti in large numbers in both cases because there is a large number of people. Both of those things are happening. It's very hard to determine how they're deciding who gets to go and present an asylum case and who just gets expelled without being even given the initial consideration for asylum. Um, But the concern there, so we talked about refugees are people who overseas, it's already been determined that they have fled of credible fear of persecution. They've gone through all the background checks. That's, of course, the preferable, more orderly process. And yet the U.S. has long had a process that requires you to get to the border. You cannot request asylum overseas. That's refugee resettlement where your odds are 
literally there's 26 million refugees. And, you know, last year we took less than 10,000. So even if we took 125,000, your odds are not good. Whereas if you get to the U.S. border or you can get here on a temporary visa, you have the right to request asylum to basically say, I can prove that I'm credibly afraid of persecution for one of these reasons. So that begs the question, well, do these Haitians qualify? And no one can possibly know that without having analyzed each case one by one, which is why it really speaks to the dysfunction of our asylum system, that it is so backed up. I mean, literally, it takes three years to get an asylum hearing in many cases. And then the debate happens, well, in the meantime, do we make people wait in camps under a bridge? Do we make them wait in Mexico, which with non-Mexicans, Mexico may not be willing to take them back. That's part of the dynamic right now. Or do we let them go live with, in most cases, with family in the United States while they wait for an asylum hearing? And those are all, in some ways, all those have happened in the last few years. What we've really said for a long time at World Relief is the government does need to enforce laws, both laws about respecting asylum, but also about protecting borders. The church needs to remember that these are human beings made in the image of God. And to look at that mass of people um, who have gone through more suffering than most of us can imagine. I mean, some of these people, what initially pushed them out of Haiti was an earthquake 10 years ago, 11 years ago. There's been another earthquake in Haiti just in the last couple months that was actually of a greater magnitude. They just experienced a presidential assassination. I mean, the, the, the concern that there could be political violence in Haiti is not absurd. I mean, there's very real concerns there for certain categories of people. So we really want to call the church. Yes, the government has its job to do. It should do so humanely, even when that means having to enforce laws and send people back in some cases. Um, but we should make sure we're giving people due process to make sure that we're not sending people back who actually qualify under our laws. And the church's role is not to enforce the law. It's to uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus and to respond with compassion. And recognizing a lot of these people are our sisters and brothers in Christ as well. Haiti is a country with a very vibrant church and people who have relied on prayer to sustain them through really, really horrific circumstances for many, many years. I'm going to invite you to visit worldrelief.org to find out how you personally and how your church as a community can engage um, both with refugees and with immigrants. Um, and let's let's keep the conversation open. Let's keep our hearts open. Let's be mindful of uh, the needs around us and let us be good neighbors. Um, Matthew, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carmen. That's Matthew Sorens. Please visit worldrelief.org. We'll be right back. All right, you guys have me uh, thinking good thoughts this morning about the gospel going forth in new ways through all kinds of um, through all kinds of means. So, thank you for being here. We got another hour up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.